Hi, I'm Brian Rosenberg, the founder of Days with Kids. I'm excited to be with my friend Garen Wade, who is also a gay dad. We're in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Garen's memoir, You'll Always Be White to Me, is coming out June 15, 2021. Yes. Garen, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me about your book. Thank excited you. to be here. Thank and you. And to see you again in person. This is the second time in seven years. Seven years, yeah. Last time was in DC. In DC. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family first? Sure, so um, I met my husband in 2008 in DC, and four years later we got married, um, and we always wanted to have children. So um, it was, you know, it took a lot of planning and uh, a lot of kind of uh, thoughtfulness on our part, but in 2012 we adopted our, our oldest son, who's now eight, Mateo, from DC, and then we recently, actually last year, got back from South Africa um, after a four-year adoption process for our youngest, Emmanuel. So it's, you know, it's been a long way to build our family. I think probably a lot of people who are familiar with Gays with Kids have watched families grow their, them in different ways, yeah. And, and for us, um, I'm just happy to, to sort of be at the finish line of that. That's great. So does that mean no more? <laughs> We're done. <laughs> Your tubes are tied? Yeah, they're done. They're, they're tied and sealed. All right, so <laughs> we're here to talk again about your memoir. Yes. You'll always be white to me. Um, so you're 35 years old. I yes. will tell you up front, I've read it. It's awesome. And I already know the answer to this question, but I think a lot of people will say, he looks really young. How could he have written a memoir? So why the memoir and why now? You know, f this memoir has been sort of in my head for over a decade. And, and there's certainly been a lot of people that I've met um, who have said, you know, after they find out the way in which I grew up, who have said, you need to write your story. But sort of to your point, I'm 35. I mean, you know, it just felt, it felt early. Um, and, and in a lot of ways it felt like I didn't know how I could actually do it because of just time-wise, right? I have a job, two kids. I mean, it's just a lot of work, right? And, and um, Carrie Fisher once said, take your broken heart and turn it into art. And you know, because you've read the memoir, that there's a lot of really tough issues in this book. Um, that was, when I sat down to write it, I decided that I really wanted to follow that, that guideline. But more practically speaking, I wanted to tell a story of the intersection of love, race, culture, and identity. I feel like in the United States, we're dealing in a time when race has made this huge mm. resurgence, yeah. and at least in, in the news, um, and things as a society as we're all dealing with it. And this book speaks to that, you know? Um, I have white grandparents. I have a, 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 a black and Mexican son. I have a South African son. Um, I have a Filipino sister. I'm Sri Lankan American. My husband's Italian American. My brother's white, but born in Africa. So sort of from every vantage point, I felt like I had something to, to offer to this conversation. So speaking of that, the title. Yeah. Talk to me about the title. It's an interesting title, and I think from what I'm gathering early on is people have very strongly held ideas about what it means. As I'm, I did. As you did, and I love that. I meant for it to be provocative, and I meant for it to be questioned. Um, I'm not going to say why it's titled that, because I want readers to be moving through the memoir and try to figure out for themselves who is saying it. Is it me? Is it a family member? Is it an employer? Is it a lover? Is it a, you know, neighbor? Um, yes. Read the book. Um, 
is a big wow to me. And as a dad of a black American son, I can tell you it, it resonated with me. And when I found, realized the, the significance behind it, it really resonated with me and it's powerful. And uh, again, from my own experience, I'm glad you're talking about this and making sure that people are talking about it. Thank you. So, Garen, you were born in Sri Lanka in 1985. You were left on the steps of a hospital. Correct. That then took you to an orphanage. Yes. But after just a short time, the orphanage deemed that you were not strong enough or healthy enough to stay there. And so they sent you to a hospital for uh, uh, malnutrition. It was called the Jayamani Malnutrition Center in Colombo. Uh, and this was all in 1985 again. And to say, I think it's interesting that we're talking now because I was there in 1985 in the fall. And uh, I don't know, I just think it's serendipitous or just uh, fate or something that uh, here we are you 35 know, years later. And of course, I've known that for a while. And I, I've said to you before, there, there's not actually, I find in Europe, plenty of people uh, have experienced Sri Lanka or have visited are familiar with. In the United States, it seems more rare that people know where Sri Lanka is. And oftentimes people will say, you know, where's that? And I'll say, oh, it's, you know, it's an island off the coast of India. And they'll say, so basically you're from India. I'm like, no, it's actually, <laughs> it's its own country. And they're like, but it's part of India? No. You know, so I, I think too, it's sitting here in 2021 in Fort Lauderdale, how cool that, you know, we are doing the very first interview for this book and you have been to the country and were there when I was you're abandoned, I guess. Abandoned. And um, I remember before arriving that, you know, there was concern between the Civil War going on between the Tamils and the Sinhalese, if I correct. Um, So, which I imagine contributed to whatever happened with your situation and the hospital, et cetera, not having records, et cetera. Right. So you were adopted by a white American aid worker couple uh, from the South here. I get my I was wondering why they went to the hospital where you were and not to an orphanage to find to adopt a baby. You know, I think um, that's a great question. I think from, you know, what I was told growing up there that that the Jayamani Malnutrition Center was close to their home and they had heard that there was a boy there. I was the only boy there. Oh, you were the only boy. Okay. And so they had just, you know, left the Philippines where they had adopted my sister. And I think they, once my mom heard that, she made her way there to find out more. And it was very clear, very quickly to them that adopting this child would be me, would be, it would be an option, you know? Um, and so they ran with it. So, but did that place have experience? Yes. Oh, okay. yes. It acted very much like an orphanage. Okay. Um, because interestingly enough, since um, I've, I've been contacted by other children who originated from there as well. Wow, yeah. I imagine that will happen even more with once yes. your book is out yeah, there. That's possibly. fantastic. I can yeah. imagine that must really. Yeah, it's very, it's strange and it's, it's really, um, it's meaningful, you know, but it's, it's also sort of a strange experience. Yeah, anyone your age? Uh, within a year or two. Wow. Not exactly at the same time. Right. And from my understanding, most of those kids were adopted to the Netherlands or to the United Kingdom, whereas I was 
they when when I've been <laughs> when I've been contacted, they've said we've never heard about an American boy, meaning they've never heard about a Sri Lankan boy that went to America. The rest right. are all across Europe, Australia, Netherlands, wow. Germany. Maybe we can get some kind of group together, at least on Facebook. Hey, right? I'm I'm in. <laughs> hey. <laughs>So, born in Sri Lanka, you moved around a lot yes. during your childhood. Yes. So, I'd love to know the most impactful experiences from each country in which you lived in. So, if I say, for example, Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. Sri Lanka for me was, you know, this. while I don't have memories of it, there's so much spoken about it in my family. I think it was just so much more about me become, coming into a family. Um, you know, my, my sense of, of that country, and, and I have been back since, um, is, is, is like getting a, getting a chance, you know? Somehow, being the only boy in this malnutrition center allowed me to, to move into this family. Okay. South Africa. South Africa is, is extraordinarily meaningful to me. Then and now, as I said, my son, you know, is adopted from South Africa. Um, but. At that time, it was pre. It was apartheid was still, you know, it was it was apartheid was still happening, and so I think just the the awareness as a kid that there was a racial divide that we were living in a country that where equality was not given to all people, it was that was the sort of serious side of it, and the amazing side of it was were the animals. I mean, really, for a, for a five six year old to be seeing elephants and, and, and giraffe and hippos on a, on a sort of a daily, ba you know, not daily but like monthly basis, it was it was incredible. You know, that is incredible. Yeah. Um, also, where you stayed when you went to uh, when, back when you there. were there, yeah, when you went back there, yeah. it sounded incredible. It was incredible. It's called the residence. If anyone wants, it's the, well, the residence. Well, we are hoping so. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, Hawaii. Hawaii. Uh, Hawaii had that kind of duality to it too. You know, as you know from the memoir, um, domestic violence against the backdrop of the beautiful, beautiful. Pacific. Um, it felt like it was the first time when I, I really understood um, understood my parents I understood my parents' marriage in a way that I felt I understood it in South Africa, but really got to see it play out in Hawaii, if that makes sense. Okay. The Gambia. Gambia is a tough one. You know, the the military takeover of 1994 was um, my first time being held up. Uh, held up by a military officer. I hope it's your only time. But it has been my only time, <laughs> yes, from a military officer. It's, there's been other times. Oh. Um, but it was very freeing, you know. It was, Gambia was, was, at the time, and I think to some degree still is, an extremely remote rural country, meaning uh, there were very few paved roads. Even the road leading up to our house w was not paved, so we would have to push our car through the sand on a, on a daily basis, and that's not a joke, to get home. Um, but I was at, in second grade able to ride my bike, you know, to the ocean with my friends with no parents. It was, there was nothing to really, it was like very free. Um, and in some ways I enjoyed that kind of rural part of Africa far more than even South Africa, where we were living in a very wealthy white suburb of Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. This was the complete opposite. Wow. Okay. Jordan. That's a long one. I wish not to cry. <laughs> yeah, Jordan is... You know, pe when people ask me about Jordan, uh, or they ask me which country was your favorite, I say I don't really have a favorite, but I have a, a one that was the most meaningful, the most formative, and that was certainly Jordan. Um, 
you know, I fell in love with the Arab world. My mom also died. So it was that, du- it, was, it was very much, yeah, the, the two, you know? I mean, how, when I still think about Jordan now, it's like, it, it brings a giant smile to my face and I, could, and, and I can cry in two seconds, you know? Um, it was hard and it was, it shaped me immeasurably and it will forever be the country that, um, the country that I remember probably the most with respect to my childhood because I was there for the longest okay. amount of time. How old were you again when you were there? I moved there when I was 13 and I graduated from high school at the ACS Amman, which is the international school there, mm-hmm. when I was 18. Okay. So I want to come back to Jordan yes. for a couple of reasons. Don't turn that dial. Um, but first, uh, let's go with Jamaica. Okay. Uh, Jamaica was probably the most fun place we lived with nothing, you know, there was no political problem there. So actually in that way, it was very, it was very much about friends. I mean, some of my, my we lived in a, con, in a condo there, um, which you know from the book, mm-hmm. almost everywhere else was like behind, it was a single family home behind big walls. Wow. And this was, you know, living in an environment around uh, tons of other kids from the international school. Um, and the first time I felt that I, it, w- it was sexual. The first time that I, um, I felt a level of, of uh, you know, independence in my family from my brother and sister. Um, I felt like it was the beginning of sort of an awakening, okay. if that makes sense. Um, Louisiana. Yeah. Have Luli? Luling. Luling. Luling, Louis- have you been? <laughs> I have not been. Okay. I uh, do love New Orleans, though. My husband yeah. and I have been a couple of times. And yeah, what a great city. Yeah. Uh, what a great American city. Luling was, as people will come to find out in this book, in this memoir, is the place you always go back to, right? It's where my mom grew up, and it's this very small Louisiana town on the banks, on the west bank of the Mississippi River. And uh, we, it's where, you know, I became an American citizen there at the age of like two and a half, three. And we would go back every summer, no matter where we lived in the world, we would return to Louisiana. And uh, it was like another country. I mean, it really felt to me like I was in a completely, I was really from my perspective. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, I prob- but I would think to some respect, I might feel that way as well if I were to Yeah, maybe it. so. And I mean that in a great way, yeah. a beautiful culture, a really rich culture, you know, with people who, who just lived so differently than me, who sounded differently than me. Yes, that's yeah. what I was thinking of too. But, and I loved it. And it, the year that I lived there, which is what you're asking about, mm-hmm. It was a year I got to be extremely close to my grandparents, my grandmother, Asho, who everyone will come to know. And then also, you know, was the, the first time I was called the N-word. So I think, you know, through these questions, you're seeing that every place had really a good and a bad side to it, or an experience, not mm-hmm. a side, but maybe an experience to it. And uh, yeah. I think, you know, one thing I got, you were very close to your mom's family. Yeah. Your dad told me didn't seem to play into it as much. Did he not have as many relatives or? Yeah, great question. So I called him after I wrote the book and I said, Dad, <laughs> my dad lives in Italy. And I said, Dad, uh, I love you so much. And just so you know, your family is not in this book. And I feel terrible. But the truth was, writing about two families in Louisiana, I think would have been ver- a lot for a reader to take in mm-hmm. when there was so much on my mom's side. And really the heart of the book speaks to my mother's side. Mm-hmm. My father's parents were incredible, wonderful. And I loved them very much, but that's how they were. There wasn't a whole other side to the dynamic. Understood. So it wasn't written about. I read the, the memoir, so I understand you should as well. Um, so I've, to continue sort of this theme about recurring themes of the book, uh, you definitely, as you mentioned, address some heavy topics or issues. You did not shy away from them. 
I'd love for you to share what you hope to convey to readers about some of the things that I found throughout the memoir. So okay. first, love. Yeah, I mean, in, in it's sort of a child sense or reference childhood, I mean, the love of a family, right? The thing that is, I think, not talked about a lot, but you know, or anyone would know, and you're an adoptive father, how powerful that is if you don't have it. A lot of people are born into it, and they are, I would say, maybe take it for granted. You know, there's plenty I take for granted, too. I'm not saying I'm like, mm -hmm. a, you know, an angel. Um, but I think if you understand that you started without a family, that then you perhaps are far more grateful for a family. Your children, my children, myself. Um, as I got older and when I came out, love was, you know, I mean, trying to find love as an adult was an entire a thing that we all, right? We all have that experience. And yeah, I mean, I got so lucky. I, my, my husband is So wonderful. I'm gonna go back though, yeah, that's yeah. great. I'm gonna go back, staying on love, but going earlier back you talk a lot about um, dealing with issues of, of racism and homophobia, et cetera, from loved ones. Okay. And so I'd love to just hear how, you know, how you're able to do that. And uh, you and I, we had a conversation the other day before I came here to talk about this, and you said something that I found pretty impactful. And so I'd love for you to share that about you know, when someone you love has opinions that are really, I don't want to say opinions that are different than yours, but that just beliefs that are built into them that are... Sure. Okay, well, it's this idea that I think, I think that we live in a society oftentimes where we're sort of, we choose one side or another. Um, it's binary to some degree. You are a Republican or you're a Democrat. You are, you know, a very proud American or you're not. You're for the war or you're not. I mean, it's it, it, this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. I think, unfortunately, in the United States, it's what happens when you have a two-party system, but that's an entirely different <laughs> Different conversation. Um, that's your next book. That's my next <laughs> Yeah, right. Um, okay, as, in terms of, of love, and what you're talking about is Asho and I. Mm -hmm. I loved her very much. A, a Southern woman who was deeply racist, who was homophobic, who loved me, and I loved her, but it was complicated. And that sits at the very center of this memoir. Um, I felt that in my life, it was important to try to find the common ground. Because I really do believe that if more people sat and talked about you know, what they have in common versus what they have, what they view differently, you would probably find that people have more, more together. Mm -hmm. And she and I did have a lot. We did have a lot to share. It just always came back to those very same conversations around race, about being gay, that she could never really move forward. Though she made progress. Did you feel she made progress in the book? I, absolutely, she made progress. Not as much as I would have loved, mm -hmm. just to be honest with you, because I really like you. And, absolutely. And, you know, would want you to have all the support, et cetera, but she certainly made progress, yeah. I think that it would have been easy to write her off. The easy thing would have been to stop talking to her. That would have made right. my life much easier, and I think it probably would have made, you know, my, yeah, it would have made my life much easier. Because I lost my mother, I didn't want to lose her mother. And I fought really hard for many years to not. And I imagine Jamie, your husband, was very supportive of that. Absolutely. I mean, y you're aware of his family as well. Yes. And actually, probably many gay people who are watching this, um, who, you know, maybe there's a person in their life who they don't correspond with or don't talk to because 
because they're not accepting of. So of I want to actually, I'm glad you brought that up um, because speaking of Jamie, he has a sister who was not very accepting of uh, him being gay and his marriage to you. But when you became dads, that seemed to change, no? Yes, that was supremely interesting to me to see how the introduction of a child into a, a gay couple, um, into a gay marriage, or as I like to call it, a marriage, uh, <laughs> can, can change someone's perspective. Because then I feel like the, from the outset, the person who doesn't want to who is you know, having some sort of problem with it is now having to make the choice of, now do I not have a relationship with a child who is you know, cute and seems to like me? And it brings right. an, an entire different, an entirely different And I, I agree with that. And, I, and knowing Mateo, I have not met any person, but uh, he is adorable. But I also think it sort of helps to normalize our families when they, yeah. when they see us with kids, which is a big part of what I hope to do with gays with kids as well. Certainly. All right, so continuing on sure. uh, after love, and you already mentioned this, loss. It's certainly something you talk a lot about. Yes, loss in many different ways, right? Loss of, um, loss of my mother would be the biggest. I think that's actually too something that a lot of people probably experience. At a young age, it really changes your entire outlook on life. I felt like the moment that she died, I, you know, within, I, I mean, um, the moment, but within a month, I realized that, you know, everything had changed for me. I mean, I had to think about taking care of my little brother in a way that I'd never thought about before. And she was, my dad is an amazing parent, but she was my like emotional parent. And, and, and to lose that at 15, um, you know, he stepped up big time, but he, they had this very traditional American husband wife relationship as as most people did uh, who were born in the late 40s mm -hmm. you know um and i think to him he pro and i'm you know he, he'll he'll watch this so hey dad uh <laughs> you know he he'll say himself that i'm sure he woke up and said oh shit how do i raise three children um in a way that she never would have had to question really but he was being an excellent provider um that loss was extremely difficult mm. um and to some degree, the loss of countries, you know, I, I a lot of people don't have this experience of moving from country to country every three right. years. You establish an entire life. You have an entire identity. You speak the language sometimes. You um, have an entire social uh, life. And then it ends. And then you start it all over again. Uh, that's hard, you know. It's also really an incredible way to grow up because you're forced into so many different new environments that I feel... I. You know, I truly believe that I can walk into almost any room and just find a conversation, um, find something interesting about someone because I've sort of been exposed to so much. Um, but on the downside, you know, it's like you never had the continuity of relationships. So I'd say parental loss, country experiential loss. Um, but yet you seem to have done a really good job keeping in touch with the most important relationship you have from each of these places, or many well, of them, right? I think that's like part of the, if you don't do that, you don't have it at all, you know? If you don't keep, you're right, that's a great, that's a really great uh, observation. My friend Vasya in London, who grew up with me in Jordan, JJ and Salim, mm -hmm. who you know now from the memoir, um, my teachers from Africa, I'm still my second grade teacher, I just talked to her yesterday. Uh, 
you know, various people. It's, I, think it, I think we all realize that we grew up in a very unique way and continuing these friendships across oceans is the way to uh, always keep that in our life. That's great. All right, so adoption. Okay. We can't not talk no, we and must. not really talk about adoption. Yeah. This adoption weighs very heavily in your life. I mean, it's a recurrent theme, right? For your family, et cetera. So you want to talk more about that? Yeah. Adoption for a lot of people is a new thing or maybe not new is not the right word, but perhaps it's something that they come into contact with tangentially, you know, sort of like they know someone who is. My father's adopted. I'm adopted. My sister's adopted. My son is adopted. My other son is adopted. Um, my uncle's adopted. So for us, it's almost generational. It is generational. It's not almost. It is mm -hmm. generational. And uh, this would be, you know, now the third generation of my family who is who has okay. adopted. I've always viewed it as this incredibly beautiful thing, um, something that can change lives if done right. There. I, I do want to be responsible in saying there are many situations in the world where adoptions have not been done correctly. The Netherlands actually very recently within the last month or two has stopped all international adoptions, I believe, as a result of... Um, From Dutch people adopting outside of Holland? Yes, because they found that there were certain countries where birth certificates were being falsified. Those children who are now my age traveled back, showed up in court, showed it, and they found that they were paid, people were being paid to show up in court to act as biological parents. So, um, wow. so I, yes, so in, in Holland right now, there is a, there's a sort of a temporary moratorium on adoptions. Um, but if done right, I think it allows for, and certainly I'm a proponent, right? I've adopted two children domestically and internationally. I think it allows for, a life that you know someone could have never had. I would never be sitting here with you. I would never have written this book. I would never be an air traffic controller. I would never be married to my husband had I not been adopted. Right. Those are impossibilities. When you're dealing with poverty and you're dealing with distance and you're dealing with, um, you know, the ability to 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 grow to grow a family and or to rise financially. A lot. You know. You, you know this. You're very well traveled. A lot of places uh, around the world. You are born into a social strata and you, it's very hard to climb out of that mm -hmm. the United States allows for that right yeah racism don't like it <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, what do you want your readers to get out of your experiences and you, you haven't even really talked a little bit about but you've had numerous experiences yeah Some pretty intense ones As a child, I was prepped pretty well by my parents that I would face racism. But it was always something I thought they said that, you know, okay. But like as a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, you're kind of thinking, is that, what, like, what does that have to do with me? You know, in the same way that your parents talk to you at, at seven maybe about like, one day you'll go to college, great. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really register. However, for me, you know, I think I was eight the first time five uh, white boys from Louisiana called me the N-word, um, and I knew what it meant, you know. And I knew, and, and more than w knowing what it meant. How until did you know? Why did you know what it meant? My parents had told me. Okay. They were very upfront with us, you know, which I loved. Um, more than intellectually knowing what it meant, it felt terrible. 
Um, and racism that, you know, this kind of racism, that kind of racism, the N-word is sort of, it's an American thing, but I think as you go through the memoir, as people go through this memoir, they'll see that racism exists in every country in different ways. For example, when I lived in Jordan, when I moved to Jordan, mm -hmm. one thing my parents didn't know that the two was that the two ethnicities, the two countries that came to work in Jordan as housekeepers were, were Sri Lankans and Filipinos, Filipinos, my sister and myself. So, you know, you know that story I tell of my father opening the door to have his, you know, largely Arab uh, <laughs> yeah. office come over and people handing me their, you know, handing me their coat uh, uh, because they just assumed I was, you know, his, uh, his help. Um, as, a, as a boy, by the way, though. As a young boy, too. Yeah. You know, sort of shocking, really, in that <laughs> yeah. way, at least from an American sensibility. Correct. Um, and... In Jordan, too, there were roundups of Filipinos and Sri Lankans. This I didn't write about to great detail in the book, where instead of, you know, some, some level of due process, it would be they would uh, pull Sri Lankans and Filipinos into um, police vehicles, take them all to jail, and then sort out who had overstayed visas, who was here legally, who was not. I was lucky in the sense that I had an American right. embassy ID, and I was able in situations where that came up to say, I'm, I'm, I'm an American. So that did come up for you? Yeah, but of course you... You f I felt poorly that, what about other people that look like me that don't have that, that privilege? Um, you know, that, these things exist in so many different ways. I was, I tell the story of being on a flight from Europe back to the United States shortly after 9-11 and having a woman turn to me and say, you look like one of the terrorists from September 11th. Honestly, that hurt more than any of the others. That was devastating to me, you know, that someone would say that to a teenager that, you know, that you would somehow be slotted into, into that. Um, that was incredibly difficult. Uh, and it's happened twice. It's happened in my adult life as well. Um, has it happened with your kids or with you as a family? It hasn't happened to my kids, but it will. And that's the thing, my husband's white and I try to prepare him for this and I tell him, you know, you have really got to get your mind around the fact that this is going to happen one day and you are gonna be devastated on behalf of our children. I already know what it feels like and I've already dealt with it and, I, and I'm prepared, I really am. But I, you know, he may disagree with me, but I'm not sure that he is prepared for what it feels like to be a white parent who is facing their child be, being called the N-word or being discriminated against or in the worst case, as we've seen, time and time again here being detained and or arrested and then potentially shot, um, sometimes killed. These are very serious issues the United States is trying to deal with now. Um, and I don't mean for this to be so, you know, I know this is a, in some degree, to some degree a bit more lighthearted, but all of this plays together, you know. Um, you asked if it's happened as a family, very luckily no. I think that also has a lot to do with where we live and where we travel. And we've made very thoughtful choices about not traveling okay. to places that that maybe would put us in that situation. Yet, you lived in those places, like. And I and I love that you bring that up because that's a, that's extremely sad for me actually. Um, I love Egypt, as you know. I ran the four hundred meters right. in Egypt for years. Um, I love Syria. Obviously, Syria for many different reasons is not a place that almost anyone can travel to <laughs> right, right now. Right. Right. Um, but. There are more countries in the world that I can't go to than, I, than that we can as a family. And I think that's something for straight people to consider and know about. And I think it's something that maybe gay families 
who haven't considered that should think about. There's, a, there's an element of passport control where you can, you know, we have hyphenated last names. So our, my name is Garen Wade. My husband's name, some people might know him already. He's an author, obviously. His name is James Suriano. Our kids have Suriano hyphen Wade. Going through passport control, you know, you're obviously tied together. Right. It's not something I thought about when we were choosing names. Um, would I do it differently? No, because I don't feel we should have to. But I do think that it's, it, it, there's a lot of, um, it's very restrictive, you know? My father is actually getting ready to move to Kazakhstan next month. And I asked him, I said, had a phone conversation with him yesterday in Italy, and I said, uh, what do you think, Dad? Can, can we all come? And he said, I don't know. We're all going to have to research this very, very um, thoughtfully. Is he nervous about, I mean, he yeah. still goes all over the world? Oh, he's not nervous about that, no. 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 Oh, how he's how like, old is he? If I he's 72. Yeah. Good for he, him. Yeah, he's, uh, he once told me, and I love this, and I'll share it here. He said, uh, I don't give a shit about dying. I care about living. And I thought, yeah, man, that's that's summarizes his life really that's great all right uh homophobia you talk a little bit yeah um homophobia i mean you know (laughs) who is it is it um i don't know i'm gonna i want to say it's uh samuel jackson but maybe it's maybe it's not but i'm gonna i'll say i'm gonna say it's him he also has a great voice but i believe he said uh you know homophobia it's not that you're scared of gay people it's that you're an asshole um <laughs> you know i think that uh that's true i mean why would anyone care i've always said that if i were straight i think i would be an enormous proponent of gay people um in the Probably same way that I'm coming from your family yes in the same way that I'm such a big proponent of women's rights, mm-hmm. I consider myself a feminist, I, you know, you can go down the line on these issues. Um, homophobia, though, has, because I was raised with a, a mother who was a sex, ed, sex ed teacher, and because we were raised in such a, a liberal environment, it was very weird for me to come to the United States in 2004 and then, like, realize that, every, that so many people are homophobic, you know, because I certainly didn't feel that way towards gay people even before I realized I was gay, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I never had that like shame at Totally part. get it, because I was the exact opposite of you, which caused me to have... <laughs> did it take, year, did it take cra- years? It to took me years, yeah. I'm in a different generation, but uh, yes. So I, I can really appreciate that, that that's how you, you never had that. Right. Which is awesome. Right, and it, it you know, I can remember wa- I went to the University of Texas at Austin um, and I remember at the time holding um, my then boyfriend's hand and having the, the football players, they were living a different life than us, obviously. They were riding through campus in SUVs and, um, you know, they made it a point to stop, roll down the window and scream out faggot. And um, that was my sort of introduction to American, like, homophobia. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in the book, in this memoir, you get to travel back to Lewing, Louisiana and visit my uh, my grandmother's ideas of what gay means, who's gay, why was I gay, was the whole family gay? Um, you know, it, it's yeah, it remains to me still to this day quite quite interesting. Um, I do want to say that I think that you know she made progress, perhaps more on gay issues than on race, and I mm. found that fascinating. Yes, in a sad way, because yeah. I think that speaks not just to your grandmother, but to society at large. Right? Sure. But one would think race has been around for longer. You uh, might have processed that earlier. You, one would think, you but know, yeah. Yeah. Um, so one more 
theme that, uh, not as recurrent, but still certainly was there, was abuse. Um, different types of abuse. You want to yeah. talk about that? Sure, sure. Um, this is something like, for me, that this is the first time I'm publicly talking about it, and I think it's important for me to do so because I want for anyone who's out there who's been through it to know that it happens. Um, I was raised to really understand the importance of being in a loving relationship and not being violent with each other. My parents had a, a really beautiful relationship in that way. Very um, much an example to, I think, almost anyone. I never saw my parents hurt each other um, ever. Did they at least get in a fight now and Oh, then? yeah, yeah. I mean, I think yeah, yeah, come on. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay, yes. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, as you now know, when I moved to Texas for college, I, I ended up in a relationship for quite a, many years, mo the majority of my college time. Mm -hmm. And um, Chad, you know, was on paper and really in the beginning this just this really attractive very very handsome very well-spoken everyone liked him uh, kind of person um, that's what was going on at the surface and then behind the scenes he was very much um, not a confident person and an alcoholic um, and tried to kill me which is and he was a good deal older than you as well, correct? He was almost 20 years older than me. Um, for years I buried that, you know? Um, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. Even though I talk about it now, it's very, it's, it's hard for me. It's um, because I felt I was so much stronger than that. It was hard for me to understand why I would place myself okay. in that situation. But of course, it's not the victim's fault ever, right? So even now, at the age of 35, this was happening when I was 19, 20, 21, yeah. I look back and I have to tell myself, but it wasn't actually your fault. But what do you want to tell people who are watching this or who read your book, who are in, in a relationship that's not healthy, about making a decision maybe to get out of that? It's hard, but get out. You know, I, ha I had the very, really a privilege, the privilege of two times after I exited that relationship of being the friend that someone called two times when someone was abusing them. Mm -hmm. And both times, one was, I was asleep, I was in bed, I got the call and I got out of bed and I found that person in Washington. And I took them to a bar and I, I had a very straightforward conversation with them and said, get out. This doesn't get better, get out. They did and I'm really happy. I wish I had someone, it's not that I didn't have someone at the time, it's just that I never was willing to speak about it with other people at the time because I was ashamed because I was thinking that it would make me as a as a man as a person look weak um, and all of that's wrapped up into like toxic masculinity and how we raise boys to to always be strong um, but yet you know what's interesting about this is you had such loving yes parents yes and so I think the example the, the thing that I carry this that I want people to take away from is if it could happen to yeah. you it could happen to anyone yes. through no fault of your own um, and so but to recognize it as soon as you can and as you said it's not gonna get better so you know get out yeah and it's 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 uh, you know it's that it's that uh, idea that I think 
especially for young people that might be watching this, you know, I'm now, I mean, I know you think I'm young. You're young. <laughs> You're young to me. Young. You'll always be young to me. Yeah, that's, that's the sequel. <laughs> uh, you know, for people who are in their 20s uh, who are watching this, just know that it's not normal. No one should be hitting you. No one should be threatening to kill you. Um, I, I, I still, I have nightmares about this person. It's been 14 years. Wow. Well, thank you for, for bringing that up yeah. as well, making that a password. On maybe a lighter note, yeah, maybe. let's talk about Mohammed. <laughs> okay, all right. Mohammed. Yeah. He's coming Mohammed. out in Jordan. Yeah, coming out in Jordan. Who wants to do that? <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> I thought I had a really strange coming out experience. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, um, I had always had girlfriends. And I, uh, you know, there, it, was, it wasn't, they were fairly innocent situations with girls. But it was, I was, I was into it, certainly, you know? I mean, I, at least I recall being into it, for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, um, and then came Mohammed when I was uh, in, in 10th grade in Jordan. And um, it was my first time physically having a sexual experience or a, um, yeah, a sexual experience of some, on some levels uh, with a, with a, a guy. Um, and that, for me, was fine because as we talked about, I had none of the shame that it shouldn't be a situation. Right. But it changed my life, obviously. You know, I mean, that first moment of sort of awakening, you know, I, I said that I had, you know, been with a lot of other women, but this was by far the most sexual thing. And it wasn't even really what we would call sex now as, right. as adults sitting here. Right. It was more like lying in a bed with our legs like touching that, and rubbing our legs against each other. I can remember just, you know, how that felt though, it was like your whole body was on fire and it just yeah. ignited this, right, yeah. this flame. Exactly, it's, it's, it takes Makes over, sense. you know? But you know, it's so interesting though, because uh, you were so comfortable with yourself even living in a country like Jordan. And it what was. made you so comfortable? My parents. It, it doesn't make sense from the outset, for sure it doesn't make sense from the outset. Because I was then, I then told friends as you know yeah. like hey i think i'm, I'm bisexual and they were cool with it and they were cool with it they weren't they were international kids you know okay i think it may have been different in 2002 to tell that to an arab kid um but you know more, the majority of my friends were arab kids um and uh it, yeah i think my parents you know that wasn't yet a, yet again they made me feel and my sister and my brother like hey if you guys are gay if you're bisexual if you're whatever we are we're cool you know um so as soon as I realized, like, hey, I, I, I like guys, you know, I was, I kind of ran with it. Um, but <laughs> there was also not a whole lot of op options right. or opportunities. So it, it sort of was something I dealt with, but wasn't able to really, truly, um, you know, and have sex until I was 19. So, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's a, there's a couple of years there where it's... We won't talk of, about those kind of right. gaps with me, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> you talk in your book... Uh, you had a very unfriendly encounter with a baboon, which most people do not have. True. Friendly or unfriendly, for that yeah, matter. Yeah. Um, but as a result of this, I remember you saying, it was a small victory for my young self, and one of the first times I realized that my voice really mattered. So I guess the baboon, you, you played a role in making sure that the baboon, baboon was not put down to sleep, instead reintegrated into wildhood. But finding your voice, you, I realized that my voice really mattered. Yeah, it was a young victory. I mean, it was it was a situation where I was lying in 
the nurse's office at school getting being uh, getting ready to be taken to the to the American embassy to get pumped with rabies boosters because I've been uh, attacked somewhat viciously like by a baboon at, at school during uh, PE um, and you know the from everything that I heard was that they were gonna they were certainly gonna kill this animal and I was very against that you know I felt like this wasn't really um, the right thing to do. I mean, this is a child's mind, and, mm -hmm. and maybe I would feel differently now as an adult. But um, I made that known. You know, I spoke about that. I spoke about that very openly. And um, and in the end, they did not. They actually uh, brought a primatologist into the Gambia, and uh, she took him to a, you know an expanse of land. I'm sure it was a reserve of some sort. And um, one named him after me, which is interesting. Cool. And two. Uh, and release them into the wild. Um, but so what is that? So how did finding your voice, like what did that mean for you? You know, at the home, I w it was, our voices were always recognized, but I felt in that setting, in a public setting where there were multiple adults who were not my parents, who were That's saying, impressive. kill him. And, and, and then being like, hang, hang on, the kid is saying no. Maybe it made them consider other options. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, yeah. Um, so Spence Chapin yeah. uh, was the adoption agency that you used um, for your international adoption with Emmanuel. Correct. So can you talk about your, what that was like, what your experience was, yeah. how, how much you worked with Spence Chapin? Sure, sure. I, uh, in, in, um, in 2016, we had tried to adopt uh, another child from DC. And there was a night that came where we were told we had a daughter and the next morning it was it was we were told that the mother had changed her mind but the mother had also, the birth mother had also tested positive for narcotics. The child was being taken to foster care and no one, neither she nor us, we would not get the child. It was tough but it was understandable and we, and at that time I called up our social worker, Maureen Kinney, who was an amazing social worker in DC and said, Maureen, it's not going so well, you know, this happened. And she said, have you heard about this program in South Africa? And I said, no. And she said, it's run out of Manhattan by an organization called Spence Chapin. And so very quickly when I heard South Africa, having grown up there, I was so excited to know that this was an option, especially for a gay married couple. Right. People should also there know that- There's very few options. There's very few options, yeah. I believe currently it's just South Africa and Colombia. Correct. And so, um, you know, we got on the phone with Spence, and uh, it was like, it took no time at all for me to be convinced, but I, I did have to convince my husband a little bit, uh, and but we made the choice. And we worked with Spence for four years. It was a very long adoption. We adopted our son Mateo in uh, three weeks from the time we talked to an agency, and it took us four years with Spence Chapin. Is but that is not on Spence Chapin's side, that is the interaction with the South African government. Is that typical then, do you know? It's become more typical with South Africa, uh -huh. yes. It used to be a year, and it truly was a year, and it's just been extended and extended. Um, families are waiting like between three and four, two and a half to three or four years wow. now. Um, I, you know, our experience with Spence Chapin was, um, was wonderful, really, in many respects. It was nice to have a charted path, even though it changed a couple of times. The idea was that there are an abundance of children in South Africa who need a home. And um, there's no parental rights that can be uh, changed here and there as you get your child, right. which is certainly what we dealt with with our son here in yeah. America. And so that in itself was just a really great reason to run with it. Um, they were an extremely supportive operation. Uh, you know, four years. I mean, you probably you know, mm -hmm. right? For you, you get you almost form a relationship with these people. <laughs> you do form a relationship. Yeah. Yes. At the four years. So Spence Chapin, and, and to disclosure. Um, 
uh, they're one of our family building partners for Gays with Kids. For those who come to our website, our Becoming section, uh, and are interested in pursuing in adoption, international or domestic, uh, Spence Chapin is, is provide a lot of our content. Right. And uh, we're happy to connect you with them. Yeah. So the last thing, you yeah. were married, you and James were married, and the officiants at the wedding were your dad and his mom? Correct. Yeah, yeah. How nice is that? That's amazing. Yeah. So I did they have to go online? And, well, your dad probably, I'm going to presume, was already able to to wed people through something with his job? No, or? no, no. So, I mean, in, in, in practical uh, speaking, right, we got married legally in D.C., but they married us in ceremony on a... On oh, so a, they didn't go on that. No, they didn't get, <laughs> you know, they, but they married us in ceremony. We brought 70 of our friends down here, actually, on a, on a yacht in Lauderdale, and um, it was beautiful. It was, I, I do, um, I'm still waiting for someone to invite me to one of those weddings because I, you know, didn't really, I don't know if you feel this way, but I... I mean, I'm very happy we had our wedding, but to some degree, it's it's just, it's not like thoroughly enjoyable. I no, think, of course because not, you're, yeah. you know, you're like the center we, of it. I, yes, we got married as well. I had a wedding too that we we ran. It was about 70, 75 people, I think, were at yeah. our wedding. So I get it. You're you're, you're like, not in. You're, you're not, sort of enjoying it, but not. You yeah. miss out on a lot. And you're all these people that have traveled from so. I mean, some people were coming from Uzbekistan. You know, so we didn't have anyone from Uzbekistan <laughs> in my wedding. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Where's my husband? Bird. <laughs> You know, you want to give these people, you know, your time because they've been so gracious to travel so far. I also didn't drink at my wedding, which, um, you know, I, I very much enjoy drink. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was like I wanted to remember all of it and be present. So I wow. didn't. But now uh, I'm waiting. You're ready. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. So anyone who wants to get married in Fort Lauderdale on a yacht, please invite Karen. Invite Darren Wade, He'll please. be a very fun wedding guest. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to tell us about the book that I didn't ask you about or, or about your life? I'm really grateful to anyone that w would consider reading this book. You know, uh, there's a lot of questions as to who, who's going to read this book. And my answer is, uh, honestly, I I'm waiting to find out. I mean, I have an idea who will read this book, you know. Um, but a journey around the world to more than 15 countries, a story of family in America and family across the world, And race and homophobia embedded in Southern culture and the juxtaposition between two very different worlds. Um, this all comes to play in this, in this memoir. I'm really proud to have written it. I do want to say I have the most incredible editor because, I, I mean, anybody, any author that's talking about writing a book and not mm -hmm. mentioning their editor, I think that you should. I mean, the amount of, it is really a, it is really a, a collaborative effort, you know. Um, and I have an extraordinary editor in Heather Sangster, who, who is in Canada, and we have worked for many months and many revisions together. And she's, she's uh, exquisite and insightful, and you know, I'm just very grateful to her for everything that she, has, uh, that she has helped me to bring this book to its sort of full potential. Well, thank you. I want to say I don't get to read nearly as much as I used to before I was a dad. Um, this is one of the only books I've read in a long time. Thank you. And uh, it was, I laughed, I cried, I cried a lot. <laughs> it was great, I learned a lot, and uh, I encourage you guys to pick it up. You'll Always Be White to Me, June 15th, 2021, and you can get it through the links below. Thank you so much. Make sure you don't miss an episode of the GWK Podcast by following us on social media. In the meantime, 
You can find Garrett's memoir, You'll Always Be White to Me, out now on Amazon.